Chapter 6 of The Wonderful History of Peter Schlemiel, The Man Who Lost His Shadow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Megan Lamb. The Wonderful History of Peter Schlemiel, The Man Who Lost His Shadow by Delbert von Chamisso. Translated by Frederick Henry Hedge. Chapter 6 Left alone on the wild heath, I gave free current to my countless tears, relieving my heart from an ineffably weary weight. But I saw no bound, no outlet, no end to my intolerable misery, and I drank besides with savage thirst of the fresh poison which the unknown had poured into my wounds. When I called the image of Mina before my soul, and the dear sweet form appeared pale and in tears, as I saw her last in my shame, then stepped the shadow of the impudent and mocking rascal between her and me, I covered my face and fled through the wild. But the hideous apparition left me not, but pursued me in my flight till I sank breathless on the ground and moistened it with a fresh torrent of tears and all for a shadow and this shadow a pen-stroke had obtained for me i thought on the strange proposition in my refusal all was chaos in me i had no longer either judgment or mastership of thought the day went over i stilled my hunger with wild fruits my thirst in the nearest mountain stream the night fell i lay down beneath a tree the damp morning awoke me out of a heavy sleep in which I heard myself rattle in the throat as in death. Bendel must have lost all trace of me, and it rejoiced me to think so. I would not return again amongst men before whom I fled in terror like the timid game of the mountains. Thus I lived through three weary days. On the fourth morning I found myself on a sunny plain bright with the sun and sate on the fragment of a rock in its beams for i loved now to enjoy its long withheld countenance i still fed my heart with its despair a light rustle startled me ready for flight i threw round me a hurried glance i saw no one but in the sunny sand there glided past me a human shadow not unlike my own which wandering there alone seemed to have gotten away from its possessor Footnote. The notion of a human shadow escaping from its possessor and independently wandering about by itself on the sunny sand is a delightful absurdity of the most woeful sort, reminding us of the laughable extravagancies of Munchausen. It is a satire on that empirical philosophy which holds that the material order is the elusive reality, the ideal order an empty delusion. Those who think thus reach only vacant and quasi-universals, more collections by abstractive generalizations from physical phenomena instead of rising to the creative archetypes in the exemplar mind of the first principle from whose external substance all else is derivative shadows and reflections. They entirely overlook the necessary presuppositions without whose coedition and cooperation no physical object could possibly exist number force space time motion are not material phenomena 
but are the logical conditions requisite for the emergence of any such show. Now, logical conditions imply the logos, as every thinking carries a thinker. Hence, material phenomena themselves prove and reveal the existence of spirit, purpose, self-determined expression. And these concepts, so far from being vacuous abstracts, are the primordial concretes, the ideal realities which lead to our intuitive contemplation, God, freedom, and immortality. No abstraction whatever can exist save as the act of an abstractor. Every abstraction is, self-evidently, the result of an abstracting act performed upon pre-existing concreteness. All the contents of these freighted propositions are obviously involved in the unquestionable fact that no shadow can possibly appear in the order of sense except as the direct consequence of causes previously existence and operative in the ideal order. A shadow is the unsubstantial form thrown on some supporting ground by an object whose opaque matter obstructs the light and excludes it from the outlined area behind. It is not an entity at all. It is absolutely incapable of independence. It is, in its ultimate definition, purely a phenomenal modification resultant from the interaction of other phenomena. But all phenomena are revelatory manifestations of their hidden causes. Every phenomenon is the apparitional unveiling of its noumenon. Furthermore, all phenomena and all noumena are interrelated in one continuous system of reality, each part of which is pervaded and unified by the indivisible whole. We can no more account for our human experience without the causative ideas of God, purposiveness, liberty, infinity. Then we can understand the production of an abstract shadow without presupposing the concrete reality of a ground, a light, and an intervening body. End of footnote. There woke in me a mighty yearning. Shadow, said I, dost thou seek thy master? I will be he. And I sprang forward to seize it. I thought that if I succeeded in treading on it so that its feet touched mine, it would probably remain hanging there and in time accommodate itself to me. The shadow, on my moving, fled before me, and I was compelled to begin a strenuous chase of the light fugitive, for which only the thought of rescuing myself from my fearful condition could have endowed me with the requisite vigor. It flew towards a wood at a great distance, in which I must of necessity have lost it. I perceived this. A horror convulsed my heart, inflamed my desire, added wings to my speed. I gained evidently on the shadow. I came continually nearer. I must certainly reach it. Suddenly it stopped and turned toward me. Like a lion on its prey, I shot with a mighty spring forward to make seizure of it and dashed unexpectedly against a hard object. Invisibly, I received the most terrible blows on the ribs that mortal man ever felt. The effect of the terror in me was convulsively to close my arms and firmly to enclose that which stood unseen before me. In the rapid transaction, I plunged forward to the ground, but behind and under me was a man whom I had embraced and who now first became visible. The whole occurrence became now very naturally explicable to me. The man must have carried the invisible bird's nest 
which renders him who holds it, but not his shadow, imperceptible, and had now cast it away. I glanced round, soon discovered the shadow of the invisible nest itself, leaped up and towards it, and did not miss the precious prize. Invisible and shadowless, I held the nest in my hand. The man swiftly springing up, gazing round instantly after his fortunate conqueror, described on the wide sunny plain neither him nor his shadow, for which he sought with especial avidity. For that I was myself entirely shadowless, he had no leisure to remark, nor could he imagine such a thing. Having convinced himself that every trace had vanished, he turned his head against himself and tore his hair. To me, however, the acquired treasure had given the power and desire to mix again amongst men. I did not want for self-satisfying palliatives for my base robbery, or rather, I had no need of them. And to escape from every thought of the kind, I hastened away, not even looking round at the unhappy one, whose deploring voice I long heard resounding behind me. Thus, at least, appeared to me the circumstances at the time. I was on fire to proceed to the forester's garden, and there myself to discern the truth of what the detested one had told me. I knew not, however, where I was. I climbed the next hill in order to look round over the country, and perceived from its summit the near city and the forester's garden lying at my feet. My heart beat violently, and tears of another kind than what I had till now shed rushed into my eyes. I should see her again. Anxious desires hastened my steps down the most direct path. I passed unseen some peasants who came out of the city. They were talking of me, of rascal, and the forest master. I would hear nothing. I hurried past. I entered the garden, all the tremor of expectation in my bosom. I seemed to hear laughter near me. I shuddered, threw a rapid glance round me, but could discover nobody. I advanced further. I seemed to perceive a sound as of a man's step at hand, but there was nothing to be seen. I believed myself deceived by my ear. It was yet early, no one in Graf Peter's arbor, the garden still empty. I traversed the well-known paths. I penetrated to the very front of the dwelling. The same noise more distinctly followed me. I seated myself with an agonized heart on a bench which stood in the sunny space before the house door. It seemed to me as if I had heard the unseen kobold, laughing in mockery, seat himself near me. The key turned in the door and it opened and the forest master issued forth with papers in his hand. A mist seemed to envelop my head. I looked up in horror. The man in the gray coat sat by me, gazing on me with a satanic leer. He had drawn his tarn cap at once over his head and mine. At his feet lay his and my shadow peacefully by each other. He played negligently with the well-known paper which he held in his hand, and as the forest master busied with his documents, went to and fro in the shadow of the arbor, he stooped familiarly to my ear and whispered in it these words. So, then, you have notwithstanding accepted my invitation, and here sit we for once two heads under one cap. All right, all right. But now give me my bird's nest again. You have no further occasion for it. 
and are too honorable a man to wish to withhold it from me. But there needs no thanks. I assure you that I have lent it to you with the most hearty good will. He took it unceremoniously out of my hand, put it in his pocket, and laughed at me, and that's so loud that the forest master himself looked round at the noise. I sat there as if changed to stone. But you must allow, continued he, that such a cap is much more convenient. It covers not only your person, but your shadow at the same time, and as many others as you have a mind to take with you. See you today again. I conduct two of them. He laughed again. Mark this, Schlemiel. What we at first won't do with the good will, that will we in the end be compelled to do. I still fancy you will buy that thing from me, take back the bride, for it is yet time, and we leave rascal dangling on the gallows, an easy thing for us so long as rope is to be had. Hear you, I will give you also my cap into the bargain. The mother came forth, and the conversation began. How goes it with Mina? She weeps. Silly child, it cannot be altered. Certainly not, but to give her to another so soon. Oh man, thou art cruel to thy own child. No, mother, that thou quite mistakest. When she, even before she has wept out her childish tears, finds herself the wife of a very rich and honorable man, she will awake comforted out of her trouble as out of a dream, and thank God and us. That will thou see. God grant it. She possesses now indeed a very respectable property. But after the stir that this unlucky affair with the adventurer has made, canst thou believe that a partner so suitable as Mr. Rascal could be readily found for her? Dost thou know what a fortune Mr. Rascal possesses? He has paid six millions for estates here in the country, free from all debits. I have had the title deeds in my own hands. He, it was who everywhere had the start of me, and besides this has in his possession bills on Thomas John for about five and a half millions. He must have stolen enormously. What talk is that again? He has widely saved what would otherwise have been lavished away. A man that has worn livery. Stupid stuff. He has, however, an unblemished shadow. Thou art right, but... The man in the gray coat laughed and looked at me. The door opened and Mina came forth. She supported herself on the arm of a chambermaid. Silent tears rolled down her lovely pale cheeks. She seated herself on a stool, which was placed for her under the lime trees, and her father took a chair by her. He tenderly took her hand and addressed her with tender words while she began violently to weep. Thou art my good, dear child, and thou wilt be reasonable, will not wish to distress thy old father who seeks only thy happiness. I can well conceive it, dear heart, that it has sadly shaken thee. Thou art wonderfully escaped from thy misfortunes. Before we discover the scandalous imposition, thou hast loved this unworthy one greatly. See, Mina, I know it, and upbraid thee not for it. I myself, dear child, also loved him so long as I looked upon him as a great gentleman. But now thou seest how different all has turned out. What? 
Every poodle has his own shadow. And should my dear child have a husband? No, thou thinkest indeed no more about him. Listen, Mina. Now a man solicits thy hand who does not shun the sunshine. An honorable man who truly is no prince, but who possesses ten millions, ten times more than thou. A man who will make my dear child happy. Answer me not. Make no opposition. Be my good, dutiful daughter. Let thy loving father care for thee and dry thy tears. Promise me to give thy hand to Mr. Rascal. Say, wilt thou promise me this? She answered with a faint voice, I have no will, no wish further upon earth. Happen with me what my father will. At this moment, Mr. Rascal was announced and stepped impudently into the circle. Mina lay in a swoon. My detested companion glanced archly at me and whispered in hurried words, And that can you endure? What then flows instead of blood in your veins? He scratched with a hasty movement, a single wound in my hand. Blood flowed, and he continued, Actually red blood. So sign, then. I had the parchment and the pen in my hand. End of chapter 6 Recording by Megan Lamb